0: Attributes in Action is the title of the series we've been working our way through the last several weeks. We have been looking at the statement in the Westminster Catechism, question four What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And so far, we have seen God's spirit, that he is spirit, his spirituality. We've seen that he is an infinite spirit. We've seen that he's an eternal spirit. And we've also considered his justice. And this morning, we come to the fact that God is holy. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his holiness. So remember, from here on out, as we discuss these various characteristics of God, all of these characteristics line up under the idea that God is a spirit and that he is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in all of these ways. So just as we've considered his justice, that God is infinite and eternal and unchanging in his justice, so we come this morning to the fact that God is infinite and eternal and unchanging in his holiness. We've been surveying some familiar territory as we've made our way through this series, partly because I hope to show them to you and that we can spend time in these somewhat familiar texts and perhaps be shaken out of our familiarity with them. Isaiah 6 is no doubt one of those passages. It's a passage that's familiar to many of us. Maybe many of us remember the first time that we heard a sermon on this passage or considered this passage in a reading of Scripture. And yet, if we're not careful, the very thing that God told Isaiah to prophesy about could be true of us in considering this passage this morning. Did you see what happened when Isaiah said, and we'll get to this a little bit later in the sermon, here am I, send me, excited to go out and preach God's word after being confronted with God's holiness? How did God tell him that was going to go? Nobody would listen to him until the, all the cities were lied waste. If we're not careful, we can come to Isaiah 6 and we won't listen. After all, We're thinking about other things, right? We've heard this before. This is familiar ground. And we can ignore the holy God that is in our midst. Brothers and sisters, that's a fearful thing. And so we need to stop and pray right now that God will not allow us to sit under the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How great is your name in the heavens, even the highest heavens. Your holiness here is on full display, perhaps unrivaled in any other part of Scripture. And so we pray by your grace, you would show us who you are this morning, not just in our knowledge, but in our hearts, in our souls, as your word comes to us again. For some of us, this will be the 200th, 300th, 500th time we've considered something like this in our years as a Christian. For some of us, this will be the very first time we've ever thought about this passage. And for all of us in between, Lord, would you draw near to us and would you help us to see yourself in your blazing glory so that we would be confronted, convicted, comforted, and compelled by this vision of you that we see here. I can't do it, Lord. I am a man. I am an earthen vessel. I am a jar of clay. But you put your word in jars of clay so that It may be clearly seen that the surpassing power is not from me, but from God the Spirit by his word. So Lord, help us this morning. Help me. Treat us with mercy. We don't deserve to see you, but we want to see you. And we want to draw near to you. And we pray that you would draw near to us this morning for Christ's sake and for our eternal and everlasting good. Amen. First point, confronted by God's holiness. I want to point out six things we see in these opening four verses. First of all, notice that the living God is the living King. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We're going to talk a little bit more about Uzziah here in a moment. And Second Chronicles 26 tells his story... He was one of the better kings uh, in the history of Israel. And he became king when he was only 16 years old. And he reigned for the next 52 years. A long and prosperous reign among the kings of Judah. Exceeded only by Manasseh's reign of 55 years. Uzziah was a great king. Age 16, reigning for 52 years. Dead. Uzziah is dead. Dead the King lives on. There is not a single head of state in all the world today that will be here in 100 years. The turnover in world leadership is 100%. Not so with universal leadership. There is no turnover. In a brief 110 years this planet will be completely repopulated by around 10 billion brand new people And all seven billion of us alive today will have vanished off the earth like Uzziah. But not God. He never had a beginning. He has always been and he always will be alive, living and reigning as the eternal king. Second, notice this living king is the reigning king. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne... When we get a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, what do we find there? An empty throne? Of a king who is absent? Perhaps on a trip, taking a walk in the field? Getting his shoes signed? Meeting with some foreign dignitaries? Or do we find a nervous king? Barking orders while biting his nails? No, we neither find a president who is often away from the White House, nor do we find someone... Like Herod, who is fearful and making crazy demands, neither of these is the vision we receive. Heaven is not coming apart at the seams. God is never at His wit's end within His heavenly realm. He sits. He sits on a throne. All is at peace. All is under control. God sits sovereignly on His throne, ruling over all. He's not on a throne because we put Him there. He's on a throne whether we like it or not because He is the reigning King. We don't give God authority over our lives. We do not make Him Lord of our lives. We acknowledge it or we don't. Third, this living God is the exalted King. This living God is the exalted King. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. Now, in the book of Isaiah, we see this phrase, high and lifted up, contrasted with low and humbled repeatedly in the book of Isaiah. For instance, in chapter 2, we read the following. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day, has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought Lo, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So when we read the words high and lifted up, this isn't a cozy or warm image of God. This is a reminder that He alone will be exalted. That everything else will be brought low, made humble before Him. It's only a matter of time. Men walk around beating their breasts in this age. Declaring their independence. Walking as if God is not reigning. It will not always be that way. All will be humbled before him. The terror that Isaiah 2 had promised to the people. Will come to Isaiah the prophet himself in this very chapter. Fourth. Not only is the living God the living king. Reigning king. Exalted king. He's the glorious king. The train of His robe filled the temple. Literally, the hem of His robe filled the temple. It's not, even, it's not even His whole robe. It would be one thing if this God were so holy, so glorious, that His robe filled the temple. But we're, just not, just talk, we're, just, we're not talking about the whole robe. We're just talking about the hem of His robe filling the entire temple. There's a whole lot more robe left. And then there's God himself, which is a picture of exceeding majesty and glory and holiness. You've seen the picture of brides on their wedding days whose dresses are gathered around them and just cover the steps and cover the platform. The bridesmaid literally spends the entire service moving this large hem of her garment. But what would be the significance if that bride's garment filled the aisles and covered the seats and was literally over top of multiple times all the people that were gathered in the chapel for the wedding or the room for the wedding, filled the choir loft, woven all of one piece of fabric. Well, that would be just the hem of God's robe. It's just getting started. Fifth, this living God is the honored king. We read, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Now no one knows quite what these strange six-winged creatures with feet and eyes and intelligence are. Although Katie showed me a picture, an image from Twitter this week. Where they tried to draw a biblical description of angels. If you want to be freaked out, go, go see her later and she can send that to you. You will be drinking unsea juice for the rest of the week and now we know and you'll know why Al Mohler said that when angels showed up in the Bible people didn't just start clapping their hands and doing a party they wet their pants and hit the floor. Now these seraphim never appear again in the Bible at least not under the name seraphim. The seraphim literally means burning ones. According to verse 4 when one of them speaks Literally, the foundations of the temple shake. And yet, even as they live in the immediate presence of God, they do not even look upon the Lord or feel worthy even to leave their feet exposed in His presence. The seraphim do not need to cover their feet and faces because of sin. They are sinless beings. However, they are created beings, and therefore just being in the presence of the Creator as a created being, necessitates that they cover themselves. They cover their eyes because the unshielded, unveiled glory of God is too great to look upon and live. An angel terrifies a man with his brilliance and power, but angels hide themselves in holy fear and reverence from the splendor of God. How much more will we shudder and quake in His presence who cannot even endure the splendor of angels? And these seraphim are not God's only attendants. Twice in this vision, in verses 3 and 5, God is called the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of heavenly armies. God himself is the Almighty One who reigns over all, the Lord of all of heaven's armies, all of heaven's hosts. He's attended by angelic armies, not just an army, but armies upon armies. Of angelic beings, the armies of heaven who attend Him in reverence, eyes covered, glad submission. And the seraphim and the armies of heaven not only attend to Him, they worship Him. Sixth, and finally, this living God is the Holy King. And one called to another, that is the seraphim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Every, the whole earth is full of His glory. Now any effort to define... The holiness of God ultimately winds up with this definition. God is holy because God is God. Let me illustrate. The root meaning of the word holy is probably to cut or to separate from something. Something that is holy means that it's separated from the common, we might say secular, use. People and things are holy when they are distinct from the world and devoted to God. We see that with the seraphim here. They are holy because they're separated for service to God alone. But what is holiness when it comes to God? From what can God separate himself to make himself holy? See, the very godness of God means that he's separate from all that is not God. God's holiness is precisely the fact that there is none other than Him. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One. Or, 1 Samuel 2, 2, Hannah's words. There is none holy like the Lord. There is no God besides you. There is no rock like our King. So what is God's holiness? Well, it is the fact that there is none like Him. It is His very Godness. It's the very Godness of God. Hosea 11.9 says, I am a God and not a man, the Holy One among you. So God's holiness is everything that the creature is not. It's, he's the Creator. He's everything as Creator in opposition to the creature. See, holiness is like the adjective form of the noun God. To reach for the word holy is to describe and ascribe in a word the greatest thing that can be said. That there is none like this one. And yet the seraphim repeat it three times. Because there is none like God. There is none like God. There is none like God. It's unprecedented. Hebrew often uses repetition of single words or phrases to add emphasis. But no other place in the Bible is a single word used three times in succession, much less this most sacred of all adjectives. But this can only be ascribed to God. God is not just holy. He is not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. The glory of God is the holiness of God that's manifested to His creation. When God shows Himself to be holy, what we see is His glory. The holiness of God... Is his concealed glory. The glory of God is his revealed holiness. So God is holy. He's alive. He's above. He's adorned. He's attended. He's adored in worship. His holiness shines out of his glory. And the angels and his people see it. And they say. Holy. 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 Holy is Yahweh. The Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is Isaiah. Being confronted. With the living reigning, powerful, glorious, honored, and holy king. How do you feel about seeing that vision of God's holiness this morning? Well, I hope that we feel in some measure the same way that Isaiah feels. Secondly, notice how Isaiah Isaiah responds. Having been confronted by God's holiness, he's now convicted by God's holiness. Look at verse 5. And I said... Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, to become conscious of God's holiness, we have to be confronted with God's holiness. And that's what we were in the first four verses. But having been confronted with God's holiness, the only proper response is to be convicted by God's holiness. Notice how Isaiah Isaiah responds. Isaiah's first response to God's holiness is not to be comforted by it, but to be convicted by it. He is literally in terror. In the first five chapters of Isaiah, the young prophet has pronounced woe on Israel. Twice in chapter 3, six times in chapter 5. Woe, woe, woe. That is, cursed be upon you for your sin, for your disobedience, Israel. I am sent here to pronounce that judgment is coming, that there is a warning from God that unless you repent, God will come and judge you. He's been pronouncing this woe over and over again, five times, six times in chapter five. And yet when we get to chapter six, and Isaiah is confronted with God's holiness, he stops pronouncing woe on the people and starts pronouncing woe on himself. Woe is me. See, we have a lot in our own time and age. We have an eagerness to pronounce woe on others. You heard of cancel culture? Cursed be you. Woe, why all that? Because we don't know who God is. We are free to pronounce curses on each other and to do all that. But if you come into contact with God, you stop doing that as a first impulse. And you start pronouncing Woe on yourself this prophet who for five chapters has been denouncing the sins of the nation around him now denounces himself he identifies himself with the sinners he has been pronouncing woe upon Isaiah was a prophet he worked for God if anyone would have clean lips It would be a prophet of God whose mouth was filled with the word of God. And yet, he discovered he was a sinner in the area of his life where he was most committed to God. This is because in the presence of God, it's impossible to feel yourself to be clean. All you can do is identify with the rest of sinful humanity. True conviction is what happens when we stop comparing ourselves to others without reference to God and start identifying with others in comparison to God. What about you? Maybe you don't think you're that bad or maybe you aren't compared to others. But What about compared to God? Maybe we don't feel ourselves to be that big of sinners. Let's see what sin is in the example of a man we began the sermon with. Uzziah, the king. In the year that King Uzziah died, he provides a fitting example of sin. Now, we've already seen that the Bible tells us some great things about him. 16 years old, coming to the throne, reigning for 50 plus years. In general, Uzziah was a very good king. Second 2 Chronicles 26.4 sums up his reign like this. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 5 says, he set himself up to seek God and God made him prosper. He built towers in Jerusalem and in the wilderness. He hewed cisterns. He had large herds and farms and vine dressers. He had a, a large army that was organized and fully armed and equipped. He sought the God of heaven. He was successful on earth. His long reign was unusually fruitful. He even oversaw cutting edge technology in his day where we read in 2 Chronicles 26, 15, he made machines, he invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones, catapults. Things like that being invented. Then in verse 15 and 16 of 2 Chronicles 26, we read this terrifying prospect. His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. Sobering words. What was his destruction? And what brought it about? Well, Uzziah decided that since he was king, and God had so blessed him and made him so prosperous and successful, that he could do whatever he wanted. Including burning incense on the altar of the holy place in the temple. See, the priest confronted him about this, calling him unfaithful, and that he had to leave the sanctuary immediately. But Uzziah was livid. How dare this priest question my authority? And he went in to the holy place where the priest was only permitted to go and offered incense on the altar himself as the king. And God responded... By striking him with leprosy and causing it to break out on his forehead. It was as if Uzziah said to the priest, How dare you question my authority? And God said to Uzziah, How dare you question mine? And so the king became unclean, never to be allowed in God's presence again. Remaining a leper until the day that he died. He had lived in a separate house, excluded from God's presence, until he died. Now, was this not the condition of many of us outside of Christ, before coming to Christ? Is not the, this the condition of most of us, even in this room right now? A life of influence and prosperity and success leading to pride, presuming upon the grace of God because of the corruption and hardness of our hearts. We think we're okay with God because He blesses us. We think we're okay with God because He helps us and makes us successful. But then He commands us not what not to do and we just think we can get away with it. And we may for a time, but eventually even at the day of judgment that will catch us. And do not think, dear ones, that our uncleanness only exists in the bad things we do. Our uncleanness is fundamentally our pride, our self-reliance. Our uncleanness is fundamentally how unholy we are compared to God. We have more in common with Uzziah than not. Our own proud independence from God, our self-reliance, our affluence that leads us to presume upon God. Uzziah's life summarizes many of our own. We start out seeking God. He makes us prosper. He helps us marvelously. And in our affluence, we grow spiritually dull and more morally corrupt. We perceive ourselves to be strong. And we swell in pride to our own destruction. Let this sober you. Sobered me this week all over again. To really fear God. To recognize that under His blessing, we can depart from Him. We can grow cold toward him as he blesses us and blesses us and blesses us. And we ignore and ignore and ignore. The test of prosperity is very difficult to pass, the test of adversity is very hard to, to pass. And it's why we need to be convicted, not just of what we perceive as our own uncleanness, but like Uzziah, recognizing that we can grow strong, grow in pride and destroy ourselves even in that stint. So Lord, keep us humble before you. Keep us fearful before you in in a reverent right sense. This was Isaiah's first need. This is our first need. This was Israel's need. We all need to be confronted and convicted again and again by God's holiness so that we can be kept in our proper place so that we don't swell up with pride leading to our own destruction. God's holiness will keep us there. Thirdly, after being convicted by God's holiness, Isaiah is finally comforted by God's holiness. Confronted, convicted, comforted. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, God sending his messenger angel, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Now, here we have an altar, a place where sacrifice is offered. We see atonement being accomplished and being applied to Isaiah. And that application to Isaiah atones for his sin, his guilt is taken away, and his sin is forgiven. And this provision, this grace, comes not be, despite God being holy, but precisely because he is holy. See, Isaiah 55 says that the Lord's ways are not like our ways. Higher than the ways of heaven. See, when we think of a holy God, and we think of being convicted by our sin in His presence, we think, we're dead, we're doomed. But precisely because God is holy, He atones for sinners. That is part of His holiness, because He's not like a man who would exact vengeance on those who sinned against Him. Rather, He shows mercy. He shows grace because He is holy. Now we see a picture of how forgiveness gets purchased here. See, God just can't pronounce forgiveness over Isaiah. There has to be a sacrifice made. There has to be an atonement given. There has to be an atonement applied. As we've seen throughout Isaiah, the proud are being made low and God is being exalted. But only two other places put together this exact language of high and lifted up with low. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, Isaiah 57, 15, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. That's why Isaiah is experiencing what Isaiah is experiencing. Because God dwells in two places. In His own extreme glory and with those who know they aren't in His presence. God inhabits those places where His people are convicted of their sin and look up to Him for mercy. And the other is even more surprising. In a book where God shows up and all else goes down... Chapter 52 tells us about a God who is high and lifted up. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. And who is this servant of Isaiah 52? Why, it's the servant of Isaiah 53. The Lord Jesus Christ, who was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. See, on the cross, Jesus made atonement for our sin. He died in our place, which is what is being pictured here by this seraphim taking this coal from the altar and applying it to Isaiah. Christ died in our place. He absorbed in Himself the penalty that is due to us. And in a moment, by faith in Christ, God applies the merit of that atonement to us. We are justified before God. The Father sees us in His Son with the very righteousness of Christ. Our sin is counted To Christ and atoned for on the altar of His cross. And His holiness is transferred and accounted to us. And God doesn't just count us holy in Christ. He doesn't just leave us in the misery of our unholiness. There is yet more grace. In time, He makes us more holy. Because of our union with Christ. We see Him and we realize our unholiness. And we confess our sins. And God amazingly makes provision for our unholiness and for us to become holy ourselves in Christ. Have you seen this morning God's majestic holiness? Dear ones, kids, do you not realize that this is the God you will one day stand before? Has that made you afraid? Has it made you rightfully fearful? Good! But that's not where it stops. That fear, that terror is meant to lead you to God where he will comfort you. He will not leave you in your sin. He will not leave your sin undealt with, unforgiven. He will touch the very parts of your heart and life that you feel are most defiled. Isaiah says, my mouth is unclean. What happens? The seraphim takes the coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's mouth, and it's clean the very sin that we confess to God, God will forgive. He will pass over. He will absorb in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that only happens on the back end of being confronted and convicted. Unless we're confronted, we're not convicted. And unless we're convicted, we're not comforted. We can't get comforted by God any other way than dealing really with who He is and dealing really with who we are. This is why John Calvin began his Institutes of the Christian Religion with that sentence. The tr- that, that the vast majority of all good theology consists in two things. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of us. we got to know those two things. we got to know who God is and we got to know who we are. And this passage gives us both. We know who God is from the first four verses. We know who we are from verse 5. We know what God does with unholy people as a holy God in verses 6 and 7. That if we come to him contrite, broken for our sin. That if we come to him asking and seeking forgiveness. Notice, really, Isaiah is not even seeking forgiveness here. He's just crying out, I'm dead. I'm done. I'm doomed. It's over. I'm judged. And just in that moment, God forgives him. Isaiah was not expecting that. Isaiah wasn't expecting the vision of God's holiness to begin with. And he certainly wasn't expecting the response that he received from the seraphim as the seraphim flew with the burning coal to touch his lips and say to him, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Dear one, if your trust is in Christ this morning, which I know most of ours is, I want you to hear that afresh pronounced over you again this morning. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's done. It's finished. Your guilt is gone. Your sin is atoned for. That's the good news of the gospel. What does that lead us to do? Stop there, right? Go right to heaven. Now we got a life to live. What does that life look like? Compelled, compelled by this vision of God to live for his glory compelled by God's holiness look at Isaiah's immediate response in verse 8 I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send who will go for us then I said here I am send me it is both knowing and experiencing the fear of the Lord and the love of God in Christ that moves us toward both God and others Now, if God is going to use us profoundly, He has to crush us. He has to make us feel unworthy. He has to confront us with His holiness. He has to convict us. He has to comfort us with the gospel. And then we go. What if we don't have that process? Well, if we're sent by Him to go... What are we going to tell people about a God we haven't experienced? What good does that do? No, we have to personally experience being confronted with God, convicted by God, comforted by God. And dear ones, this happens every day. This should happen every day. Not, not an Isaiah 6 experience every day. You don't have to wake up, hit the ground, cry for three hours, then go to work. It's not what we're talking about, but you need to reckon with God is God. As your feet hit the floor, God reigns. God has bought my life. I belong to Him. I don't get to call the shots today. God is God. I'm a sinner, desperately in need of the grace of God. I will wander to and fro today if He does not keep me. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Every day. As much as I pray for daily bread. I pray for that. Jesus teaches us. Keep me God. Keep me God. Keep me God. And then we're comforted. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The gospel is true for you today. And we live out of that good news. What does Isaiah say? At your service. That's literally what he says. Hanani, Hebrew. Here I am, at your service. Whatever you want. Whatever you want, I belong to you. That's the response of a Christian. Whatever you want, at your service. Do with me what you want. We offer first ourselves to God, fully to Him, to belong exclusively to Him. And isn't it interesting that when the New Testament describes the followers of Jesus Christ, we are called holy ones, saints. We are those who are set apart to the service of the Lord. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us with a holy calling. 2 Peter 3.11 says that we are to live holy and godly lives. Hebrews 12.14 says we are to make every effort to be holy. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says that we are not to live impure lives. We are to be holy as God is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. That's the first response. We offer ourselves to God to be His exclusive possession. Here I am at your service. But secondly, send me. Send me. We not only move toward God, but in doing so, God invariably sends us to others. That happens. You don't have to Be a prophet to have that call on your life. To be sent by God. John 17. As the Father sent me, so I send you. We're sent. We're sent on a ministry of reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter 5. We proclaim the ruin and redemption that we ourselves have experienced in Christ to others. This is what it means. We are compelled by the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, to be ministers of reconciliation, proclaiming that God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against us. So we proclaim that he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We offer that reconciliation to our family, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our neighbors. Do you view yourself as one who has been sent You were on a mission, dear one. We are all on a mission. We are not just passing through to get to heaven. We are here to bring people with us into heaven. Will anybody be there because of your influence? Let it not be because you didn't do all you could to make the gospel known. You can't bring anybody to heaven, but you can declare the message that gets them there. And we can do that a lot more faithfully, I'm sure. Now being compelled by holiness means that we move toward God and others. We lay our life down to serve Him and His cause. Happily ever after, right? God calls. Isaiah answers. He goes. He preaches. Revival breaks out. That's not Isaiah's story. And I don't think that we should assume that will be our story either. God tells Isaiah up front that being the messenger of a holy God will be hard. He summarizes in verse 9 what Isaiah's message to the people will be. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. What? He explains in verse 10. Look at what he says. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, Isaiah, your ministry is a ministry of condemnation, not a ministry of salvation. A spiritual dullness, a spiritual darkness, a spiritual deafness is settling in upon the people. Total unbelief, inward and outward, from heart to heart. To the ears, to the eyes, to the eyes, to the ears, to the heart. Inside and out, outside and in. By and large, the nation is beyond repentance. Speak anyway. Speak anyway. This is not irrelevant for us today. We can be so easily deterred by the hardness of heart we encounter. The spiritual dullness in the people that we love the lackluster attitude of responses to the gospel. But what if, like Isaiah, we expected it? The call to be holy in an unholy world is difficult, hard, and unnerving. And it isn't limited to Isaiah. Christ himself quotes Isaiah 6 when his disciples asked him why he spoke in parables. Did you know parables... Were meant to conceal as much as to reveal. We think, oh, he shared stories so people could understand. No, he shared stories so people would be judged and not get the point. Matthew 13, he says this. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. The Son of God walked among people, healed, declared God's word, preached the kingdom of God, people ignored him. He says, Isaiah 6, happening right now. And Isaiah 6 is still happening. The Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 6 at the end of the book of Acts. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. You ever done that? Labored in Bible study with somebody? walking through the whole Old Testament over and over and over again, trying to help them see that Jesus... Getting nowhere. Getting nowhere. Paul did it. House to house. Greatest missionary ever lived. Morning till evening. Expounding. The Old Testament. The kingdom of God. Here's what happened. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying... To your fathers, through the Isaiah, the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. If it went that way for Isaiah, and it went that way for Jesus, and it went that way for Paul, do you really think it's going to be different from us? Well, thanks, Pastor Mark. Spend the whole sermon talking about the great holy God who's alive, being convicted of our sin, being comforted, the God, God changes Isaiah on the moment and then sends Isaiah and no one's changed. Thanks for that. Thanks for ending the sermon on such an encouraging note. I'm so compelled to go evangelize right now. Aren't you? Go ahead, preach the gospel to your family, friends, neighbors. They probably won't listen. They'll just ridicule you instead. That's not how the chapter ends. Bleak as this calling to holiness for Isaiah would be, we end with an amazing ray of hope at the end of this chapter. His holy calling would be hard, but not without hope. In verse 11, Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? He's not up for this now. He's already asking. He was eager in, chap- in verse 8. Send me. Then he gets the call and he's like, okay, how long do you want me to do this? It's hard to keep preaching and talking when no one is listening. God's answer is essentially until the last city is destroyed and the people are exiled, which does happen. In other words, utter devastation is coming. Judgment will be full. This will not be cut short. But then, notice verse 13. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I'm going to tear Israel to the ground and bring Christ. I'm going to tear Israel to the ground and bring Christ. The stump will be a sign of life. What? stump's a sign of death. The stump marks where a tree once stood and now doesn't stand. But a stump at least remains. Roots remain. The tree has not been totally consumed. It has not been uprooted. And that stump is the holy seed. God's promise to David to send an anointed one. Judgment is coming. And it will take an axe to the tree of Israel. And that tree will be felled. But that stump will remain. And then Isaiah 11.1. Which we read at Christmas. We hear, there shall come forth a shoot. From the stump of Jesse. That's why we don't lose hope. Because the hardest heart that you know, God can send life to. Shoot, life comes up. A stump, nothing there. And yet I see something coming out of the ground. When we did the Jesse tree with our kids when they were younger, I always loved that we read from Isaiah 11 on the first day. It still rings in my heart every Christmas. God loves to bring life out of stuff that looks like it's dead. Isaiah lived and was called in the days of steep and enduring decline. He has a unique ministry to preach the final judgment to the people of Israel. But that doesn't mean that God's world is without hope because of Isaiah's commission. He was promised no revival in his time, and yet there is hope. These decades of decline and judgment for God's people will not be the end. The great tree may be felled, but the stump remains. And in God's timing, long after Isaiah's life, Christmas will come. A shoot will emerge from the stump. And that shoot did indeed come. In fact, when he came, John twelve forty one says that it was the shoot himself that Isaiah saw in his vision. John comments, Isaiah said these things because he saw my glory and spoke of me. So brothers and sisters, may God make us like Isaiah. Beginning with a profound and expanding vision of God's holiness. Leading to the realization and awareness and confession of our own sin. Along with the profound experience of God's striking grace that would put us on a path of willingness and eagerness to be his instrument in word and deed in these hard days that are never without hope. Because a stump... Gave rise to the root of Jesse. And he has come, and he is reigning, and he is granting repentance, and he is bringing his kingdom in. And so let us not lose heart, even in the day of small things. God loves to do things and bring life out of things that look like they're dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this vision of yourself. That we receive in Isaiah chapter 6. Pray that it would hit us in some way anew this morning. Something of your holiness that we've long forgotten. Or scarcely remember. Or just needed to be reminded again. Help us to be convicted afresh by our own sinfulness. Help us to run to you again. For the comfort that you give us. And taking away our guilt. And atoning for our sin. forgiving our sin. And help us to leave this morning freshly compelled to go into our families, to our workplaces, to our ministries, to the people that you have sent us to, to care for, to share the gospel with, to love, to pray for, to invite to church, to befriend, to have in our homes and in our lives that we might introduce them to this God, that we might make known to them this Jesus. And Lord, thank you for calibrating our expectations appropriately. We know we once had hard hearts. We were once stubborn. But you brought life to us. You brought life to Isaiah here. And so we pray that you bring life to those we love, to our children, to our grandchildren, to our friends, to our family members that are wayward, that we saw this Thanksgiving and thought, no hope. I don't see any hope. A stump gave rise to the root of Jesse. We do not glorify you when we fail to have hope. Let us never lose heart. Let us never fail to have hope. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and respond.